Hello and welcome again to another edition of Lost in Science across Australia on the Community Radio Network. My name is Stu and on this week's show I'm going to be having a look back in history to a time when we didn't really know anything smaller than we could really see with our naked eye. Um, back when the microscope was kind of a new idea but uh, suddenly got a whole lot better and we realised there was a whole world we didn't know about lurking beneath. Mm. Chris, what have you got for us? Uh, well, Stu, thank you. I am going to be talking about, well, something I talked about before a couple of times, your, your coal seam gas, your fracking, your unconventional gas, those sort of things and the risks thereof. Um, I've, I've covered it before. I think earlier this year I talked about earthquakes caused by unconventional gas mm-hmm. of this form. Um, one of the big things, of course, people are worried about is the contamination of water supplies. Yeah. I haven't really talked about that too much because it is kind of hard to find, I suppose, solid science on this. Mm. There's a lot of kind of weighing risks and, and hypotheticals there. But there's been a new study out in the, in the US that's got a pretty convincing case of how um, particular water supplies were contaminated by, um, by a, a gas well, so yeah, I thought I would look at that because, um, and looking at it, actually, I was surprised to find that there was kind of there is a fair bit of scientific agreement on the nature of the risks. Is just kind of how much of the risk is kind of the thing that's argued about. So yeah, I'm going to look at that um, and particularly look at this American study. Um, probably won't have time to cover how it applies to Australia. So I thought next week. And the two-part thing, I would look at what's happening with Australia and what kind of risks and things have been identified here. But, yeah, for the moment, I'm going to look at the United States. If I was to mention the name Anthony Van Leeuwenhoek, it would probably not ring any bells with most people. I would say Gesundheit. <laughs> and would probably furrow the brows of any Dutch speakers uh, at my terrible pronunciation. But uh, Leeuwenhoek made some amazing discoveries in his time, um, and that was mainly due to his improvement of the microscope and also his extensive cataloguing of what he saw through his new invention. Now, he didn't actually invent the microscope. The microscope had been around since about 1540 or 15, oh, yeah. mid-1500s in, in various forms. So that's, what, 565, mm. 75 years ago? Yeah, something like that. Mm. Um, but uh, he was actually uh, originally a cloth merchant, and a draper, and he was in business being a cloth merchant and a draper, and he became fascinated with lenses after using simple magnifying glasses in his trade. So, so, so when was this? 
Uh, this was in the mid-1600s. Right, okay. So the Microsoft had been around since 1540. Yeah. He's in like 100 years later. He's yeah. mucking around as a, as a haberdasher. As a haberdasher or a draper or a, yeah, selling, selling cloth. Mm-hmm. Um, and they had these magnifying glasses to, ha- to assess the quality of cloth that they were buying yep. and selling. Um, and he sort of got a bit obsessed with them. Uh, and he, you know, found a way that, you know, quite quickly he bought his own uh, magnifier, and then he started to learn the uh, the skills involved in glass grinding to make his own magnifying lenses. Uh, and then he figured out a way to make tiny little glass spheres, which he used as lenses in his what became okay. microscopes. So he, he'd get like a bit of glass and then uh, stretch it out, or make it really hot, stretch it out so it um, solidified in a very thin strand. Yeah. And then he'd put that thin strand over a flame again where it would form a little globule and it was a perfect, you know, almost perfect sphere. And then he'd grind off the the imperfections and uh, he'd have these amazing little tiny lenses. That's um, obviously a very small radius of curvature. So we're talking a lot of light bending going on there. Yeah. Um, Well, the, the thing about his microscopes is they only had single lenses. Hmm. They were single glass lenses. Um, but they were able to achieve up to about 200 times magnification. Wow. So uh, that was about 10 times better than the compound microscopes at the time. So how, how big were these lenses, roughly, these little beads? They, they, were, they were only a couple of millimetres across okay. that he was making them. So he had a good eyesight to see anything through those things. Well, he was well. probably looking at them through a bigger lens, I oh, guess, no, while, he was, while he was working with them. Um, but, and you know, so he, he made these tiny lenses uh, with 200 times magnification. And he was curious to look about look at just about anything under his microscope. Um, and once he started doing that, he hired an illustrator. He wasn't very impressed with his own drawing abilities. So he hired an illustrator to produce diagrams to accompany the detailed descriptions of what he saw. So in... 1673, he had a description of the mouth parts of bees published by the Royal Society in London. Um, and he kept sending stuff to the Royal Society, uh, and they soon began to doubt his reliability as a researcher because he started reporting on these bizarre life forms that he was observing through his microscope. Um, which just sounded utterly bizarre and mysterious and not like anything that they'd ever heard of before. Um, so he, he called them animalcules. So sort oh. of like a molecule, but an animalcule. Um, but they were these, you know, tiny, tiny little things. And he found them in all sorts of places. He found them in water samples. Uh, he found them in his own mouth. Uh, and as I said, he basically grabbed anything he could and stuck it under his microscope. Um, and he, he did continue to get things published um, because he insisted to the Royal Society, he wasn't making things up. He said, come over to uh, the Netherlands and have a look through my, through my microscope and you'll see that I'm, I'm actually mm-hmm. seeing these things down the microscope. So they did. They sent a delegation to observe through his equipment uh, and they agreed, yeah, he was actually seeing these actual living things uh, under the microscope, which was so small that you couldn't see them with the naked eye. So what were these things? Um, well, this is what he was observing was actually microscopic organisms. So he was seeing uh, bacteria mm-hmm. and he was seeing, you know, tiny little fungi and protozoa and... Paramecium. Paramecium and, and cells and all sorts of things under yeah. there. Um, 
which were completely unknown before this point. Yeah. So he kind of changed, um, you know, he he completely altered the scientific understanding of everything from, you know, agriculture to, to medicine. Uh, the way that science looked at the world had completely changed because hmm. there suddenly there was this tiny um, sphere of life well below anything we'd sort of noticed before. Yeah. Um, so uh, he, he did continue to get things published and I, I thought this was just amusing because I often comment that um, scientific journal article titles are a bit long-winded and possibly overly descriptive, but there is one from the uh, Philosophical Transactions 1677 to 1678, which you can actually access uh, via royalsocietypublishing.org. You can actually look this up and download the PDF okay. of this actual paper. Uh, and the, the title of the paper is Observations Communicated to the Publisher by Mr. Anthony van Leeuwenhoek in a Dutch letter of the 9th of October, 1676, here Englished, I think that's a made-up word, Englished, uh, concerning little animals by him observed in rain, well, sea and snow water, as also in water wherein pepper had lain infused. Pepper. Pepper. So he'd obviously had a little dish of water with pepper in it, and he, yeah. and he waited and saw what happened under there. And he, and he, you know, he observed all of these things. He... um. He did continue to look at just about anything, and he looked at plant and animal tissues, uh, and he looked at crystals, hmm. and he looked at rock formation, you know, the, the, the grain structure of oh, yeah, rocks yeah. and things like that. Uh, and he looked at fossils, and he actually became the first person to discover the existence of formanifera, which are tiny microbes that actually have shells around them. So they also fossilize quite easily. Oh, wow. Um, and he also discovered things like nematodes. Nematodes are tiny little worm-like mm. critters that are too small to see with the eye, but they cause, you know, problems. Yeah, they cause problems with plants and agriculture yeah. and stuff. So the fact that they could suddenly see these things meant that they could so sort of start solving those kind of problems. Mm. Um, he was also the first person to observe living animal sperm. Not sure how he went about doing that, but he actually saw them under the microscope. Uh, and he also demonstrated the flow of blood through capillaries in really? a living eel. An eel. Yeah, he went okay. and he went and visited Russia and showed the Tsar of Russia in 1698 the flow of blood through an eel's capillaries. Wow! Under his microscope, um, and he was made a How do you fellow hold an eel still to do that. Yeah, well, that would be pretty tricky. <laughs> still enough to peer through a microscope yeah. at it and stay in focus and stuff would be pretty tricky. Um, he was also made a fellow of the Royal Society, though he never attended a meeting. Uh, and he continued publishing his findings until his death in 1723. So there was, you know, a good sort of 40, 50 years of, uh, of publications of new stuff. But I guess, you know, if, if you've got the, the most powerful microscope in the world, you're going to keep finding stuff for quite a long time. Mm. Um, so recently, uh, a photographer was interested to see exactly how much detail he would have observed um, through his microscope. So he constructed his own rig to take photographs through a Leeuwenhoek camera. And you can actually see those photos in an article by Nick Lane, which was published again in the uh, ph uh, Philosophical Transactions of the Royal Society. Um and the article's called The Unseen World, Reflections on Leeuwenhoek, 
1677. But uh, I will actually put the link to that up on our um, podcast. Maybe a picture. And, and yeah, I'll, I'll stick some pictures up as well. But, um, yeah, amazing stuff and, and you know, quite a, a, an earth-shattering, world-changing discovery that, you know, microscopic organisms are all around us all the mm. time. So Lost Insides is recorded in the studios of 3CR in Melbourne, as you know, and it does go out across Australia on the Community Radio Network, but that's the whole thing. It's community radio. So next week, our show on 3CR in Melbourne will be live to air, and what we want you to do is to call up while we're live to air at 8.30 on Thursday morning. Ring, ring. And give us your money. If you like what you hear on Lost in Science, we need you to help keep us on the air. So... We've got to raise funds, as we do every year, to keep making this radio show in Melbourne. So next week, which is the 11th of June, is our annual Radiothon show live to air. So ring up between 8.30 and 9.00 and show us your love by showing us your money. Yeah. And even if you don't like us, and this is your chance to buy some leverage and, and make changes, I guess. Yeah. And we will have some giveaways to give away. Yeah, yeah. So if you, if you ring up and donate some money, you can possibly win a science book or something else which we will figure yeah. out. I don't think I'm exaggerating in saying it's, it's the best show of the year and well worth worth your money. Okay, I, I might be exaggerating but it's worth well definitely well worth, worth your money. Definitely tune in yeah. and definitely give us your money. Unconventional gas is what I'm talking about. So this is like your um, your coal seam gas here in Australia is is, is the big thing um, so that people's ongoing concern about. What what sets it apart from I don't know what what what's normal gas? If this is unconventional, what's conventional gas? Well, conventional gas, I guess, when there's big reservoirs of gas mm-hmm. under the ground, um, and all you have to do is do. sort of tap yeah. into them and yep. it leaks out. Yeah, well, as unconventional gas, usually there is gas trapped in, in pores in rock in some okay. form. So here in Australia, it's mostly coal seam gas. So it's, as the name suggests, it's in the seams of coal. Uh, and yeah, the, between the, the, the sort of, I suppose, the grains or the, the lumps of coal, there are these little cracks and there is water and gas in those cracks. Mm-hmm. So it's a matter of forcing out the, the water and the gas and separating the water and getting a hold of the gas, which is usually methane. Okay. Uh, there's also shale gas, which is what you tend to have in more in the United States. There's a bit of that in Australia, but um, it's kind of harder to access. Uh, and shale gas um, is the shale is a lot. They're the kind of the layers, mm. the, you know, really sort of tightly packed layers. It's a lot harder to, to pull the, the gas out of. So that's where they use fracking most of the time. Which you may have heard of the word fracking. Uh, fracking is not used so much necessarily in, in coal seam gas, but is used pretty much all the time to get the, the gas out of the shale. And what fracking is is essentially it's forcing liquids. It's called hydraulic fracturing, so it's forcing liquids into the rock, which creates fractures. 
mm-hmm. arm to allow the gas to escape, which can be pumped out. Okay. So there's quite a bit going on. That's why it's unconventional because it is, does sound quite weird. And it's got this this funny sounding name, of course, which anyone from Battlestar who's watched Battlestar Galactica would be immediately kind of suspicious of. Yeah, I'm not sure that that's what they were talking about, but, but you know. <laughs> yeah. Now, and of course it is still, of course it is, it is highly controversial. And because there's all this involving water and liquids underground, water contamination is one of the biggest worries. Certainly one of the things that people talk about the most here. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's been talked about a lot in America as well. They've been doing this stuff for, for a lot longer. Uh, and there was that, the, one of the most influential things has been the film Gasland. Uh, and there was a famous scene in that where they set fire to tap oh, the water. The tap water, yeah, yeah. And now that is that kind of demonstration shows you that you know how there can be gas within the water. Um, trouble with, with something like that, even though it's spectacular, that is, it is kind of hard to verify that that is due to um, gas extraction or fracking or whatever. Um, yeah, well, because if the gas is there in the groundwater, yeah, or, or you know, at, at any time, then how do you know? If it was going to, if if it was already there, or if it became more apparent That's when right, they started, yeah. and all those sorts of things. Yeah. So this is this is where people are getting their their drinking water from from wells and mm-hmm. and yeah from groundwater from aquifers, and there can be a natural. Well, it's all natural, but there can be natural um, methane in that water itself from uh, from different causes, not necessarily from from the deep underground where they're doing the the fracking. So it's a bit hard to establish that um, in, just from seeing a demonstration like that. So you have to do it, go track a bit further down, and try and work out whether the methane actually comes from uh, from the wells themselves. Now there have been um, people who've done this, of course, um, over the. Over the years, there have been many studies that have found that there are certainly greater amounts of methane um, from wells closer to where, where, where they're in water close to where there are these, these gas wells. Mm-hmm. Um, but even that is controversial. There was a study that came out earlier this year that claimed to find no um, strong correlation between um, methane, in, the methane in water close to, to wells and those far away from wells. Um, that is itself a controversial study because the the lead author from that was um, has worked for Chesapeake Energy, which is a big kind of gas drilling company. Okay, and so people have thrown doubt on that. But um, well, but I mean, is 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 he a geologist? Is that well, he's a geologist. So, yeah. So what do geologists do except work for you know? This is why it is it is a complex issue, I suppose. Look, the other thing I guess is important to point out there though too is this uh, measuring this methane in the in the water. It can come from natural sources. Um, it's also methane itself is non toxic. Mm. Um, so. Yeah, as it is, it can be dangerous. Of course, at high levels, it's flammable, as shown by the the gaslighting thing. So yeah, and I guess levels. and I guess the only other thing is asphyxiation potentially. Yeah, yeah. But that's that's usually at higher concentrations than it would take to be flammable. Mm. So if it's going to set your house on fire. Um, it's probably going to do that before it chokes you to death. Okay. Um, but yeah, there there are those concerns. Um, certainly, but trace amounts certainly shouldn't be harmful. But there could be other things as well. Um, there are other kinds of gases, other sort of things, chemical, other chemicals trapped in the rocks. Mm-hmm. And then there are also the chemicals that are actually used to do the fracking itself. So what sort of chemicals do they use? They don't, obviously don't just use water. Well, they use a, they use a, huge, a huge range of things, actually. Um, apparently, there's lists of hundreds of chemicals that can be used. Some of them have since been banned. Um, it's kind of a ever-changing and controversial list. You're right. It's not just water. So um, the majority of it is, is water uh, and sand, pretty much. So what they do is they essentially force sandy water. Mm-hmm. into these cracks. Um, the sand is usually held there by some sort of gum. 
mm. um, gummy chemicals that kind of hold it in place. And then they wash detergents through to wash out the gum. The sand, grains of sand stay there trapped in the, in the um, cracks and holding them open yeah. to let the, um, the other, the gas and water escape. Right. So, yeah, there's a few different, there's gummy chemicals and there's uh, the dissolving sort of detergent type of chemicals. Now, and this is where we get to kind of other cases of contamination. And this is the kind of things that have been found in the uh, most recent study, which was published um, not that long ago in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences. Uh, and this was looking at a specific incident. Um, it was looking at water from three homes in Bradford County in Pennsylvania. Now, these homes, there had been methane found in their drinking water previously, and there had been some compensation paid out to them as a result of that. Mm-hmm. Um, usually people have to get um, water replacement and those sort of things when their, their water is contaminated. Yeah. But um, <clears throat> they also noticed that the water was foaming um, mysteriously. Right. Uh, and so they had it tested. They had it tested by some commercial laboratories, but they couldn't find the source of the foaming. There's one particular bloke who had worked with them. He was still suspicious about about what was causing this this foaming. Um, so he um, um, contacted some other some university labs, and they used something called two D gas chromatography coupled to time of flight mass spectrometry which I don't really understand what all that means, but apparently allowed them to do a much more sensitive um, examination for sort of whole classes of contaminants. Rather than sort of pinpointing a specific chemical and looking for that, they could kind of cover a whole class of chemicals and do it at much lower concentrations. And what they found was this something called um, 2-butoxyethanol, which is one of these detergents that is used in the, in the fracking process. Right. And is it toxic? Uh, it is toxic at high concentrations, um, certainly, and there's certainly some developmental problems um, shown in, in animal studies. Okay. Um, but, yeah, at concentrations about, say, 100 to 200 parts per million, it's, it's been found to have those, those problems. Mm-hmm. Um, this was at levels of about less than 0.5 parts per trillion. Right. So it's well below the It's well below that, but it's, of... it's, it's enough to make the water foam, I guess, yeah. as well. So, yeah, that was the thing that they told off in the first place. So, yeah, you're right. It's it's not – we can't verify that this is an actual problem. It's not the kind of thing you're going to be wanting to have in your in your water supply. No. But they but they – can they link that back to a specific operation or, or someone's actual activities or – Well, so what made this study, uh, I suppose, so important, apart from just identifying this particular chemical, was that they managed to figure out how it could have arrived there. Mm-hmm. So they – they they can't prove for absolute 100% certain that it did come from um a fracking operation because they haven't been able to get access I believe they haven't been able to get access to the to any information of whether this this particular chemical was used in the particular wells they're trying to pinpoint right but um they they believe it had traveled from a nearby some nearby wells but when I say nearby we're about I'm talking about a couple of kilometers away okay um so so what they think it's it's they determined that it either came from um, not from the actual fracking itself. So it's unlikely because the fracking actually happens a long way below ground. So it's really unlikely that by doing fracking you're going to cause cracks to go right up through the ground to someone's aquifer. What it seems more likely is that it has been um, it's from something either a surface leak because there was a surface leak at one of these wells back in 2009, or through the actual well on, on this kind of way down through the rock and then travelled horizontally through natural fissures in mm-hmm. the rock. 
and this is this is where this is where it seems to be like kind of the main kind of culprit. Um, so the the wells they had to drill a long way down to get to the to the shale where the, yeah. the gas is held. Um, and they're supposed to have steel and concrete casing all the way down. But these wells in question only had um, down to about 300 metres or so, this, ah. this casing. And so below that, it was unprotected. And so they believe that that's where possibly that these chemicals would have you know, come out the well shaft, mm-hmm. could have leaked out into the surrounding rock and then travelled kilometres to um, to where these people were getting their, their groundwater from. So is that... Were they sort of breaking regulations by not having that casing? or Well, it's one of those things that there are changing regulations all the time. Um, people don't always do the right thing. This is where it gets quite complicated. And one of the stories you get with this is certainly is that um, this, this is the kind of thing where people, there can be kind of a broad agreement of how things should be done and what the, what the problems may be. Mm-hmm. But the proponents of these kind of gas welling, drilling, whatever, um, will say, well, look, as long as it's done right, it's perfectly safe. Yeah. Whereas the opponents will say, yes, but you're not doing it right. Yeah. Um, and this seems to be the problem. So no one's quite sure. And this, this is, there's a lot of dispute on this. Um, so the, so I've found some reference. Apparently some of the people who, the, the ones before I was talking about who claimed there wasn't any connection between methane in water and, uh, and the wells, claims that you're going to get these unsealed wells with leaks, probably about 0.24% of wells, he estimated. Mm-hmm. Whereas other people who are more critical of the whole thing and have done other studies reckon about 9% of wells are going to be not properly sealed and leaking in this way. Right. So that's a big difference. Yeah. You know, between, you know, less than um, a quarter of a percent up to 9%. Um, yeah, it makes a big difference to how much this is, what's the prevalence of this, this kind of problem. Yeah. But that does seem to be, as I said before, this is what the, um, there seems to be this agreement, but this is what the problem is. It's when these wells aren't sealed properly, seems to be the main cause of, mo- of both the methane leakage and these other chemicals getting into the, into the surrounding rocks. It's just a matter of how often the wells aren't sealed properly. Right. So, yes, it is kind of an issue. Um, I should point out, though, when we're talking about conflicts of interest, so the, the bloke who was the lead author on this, this study, this recent study, he has provided consulting and litigation support for the households involved um, with the water contamination. So oh, okay. he will kind of try to point, point him as having conflicts of interest and commercial interest in the whole thing as well. So it's a murky situation mm. either, way, either way you cut it. But, yeah, look, I guess the thing is we need these kind of studies – this, this is a good important study because, like I said, it showed geologically how this could have happened. It's a very plausible story. Yep. It's got a, a chemical that has been known to be used in fracking operations found in households where there had been um, methane um, also contaminating the water supply. These households had had payouts from the gas companies previously, so that kind of they were supporting the idea that there was methane contamination from the wells yep. themselves. So it's a fairly strong story, and these kind of cases will let us. I guess better be able to determine how often this sort of thing happens, and then really though, though it's a matter of deciding. I guess for the community, if people decide how much they think is acceptable, what is an acceptable risk? Mm. And I think most of us would say it's we don't want these kind of contamination. Yeah, well, I mean, it's not just the risk; it's it's once it's done. Yeah, it's uh, it's you know, it's not like this family or these families can reverse the problem because exactly yeah. how how can you reverse something that's you know, that on, on that sort of scale, I guess. Is, yeah, especially if it's travelled a few kilometres. There yeah. could be more on its way. Mm. So, yeah, look, that's, that's a, it is a really interesting thing. And, um, again, this is, we're talking about America. Next week I'll have a look at what the situation is in Australia. It is a bit different. We mostly rely on coal seam gas, which has 
less fracking required, probably only about half the wells or so they reckon require fracking for coal. But it's also coal seam gas is often at a much shallower depth. And so you have different risks to groundwater mm. than you might get with um, with the shale. So, yeah, the problems are a little bit different. But we can certainly learn from these cases from the United States and, and keep an eye on, on what's happening over there with the, the experience that they've got. Well, we've come to the end of another episode of Lost in Science on the Community Radio Network. Thanks for joining us. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can email us at lostinsci at gmail.com or you can leave a comment on our blog, which is lostinscience.wordpress.com. And we're also on Facebook and Twitter if you want to look for us there. Lost in Science is recorded at the studios of 3CR in Melbourne and broadcast across Australia on the Community Radio Network with the financial assistance of the Community Broadcasting Foundation. If that's not enough information, you can tune in again next week when Chris and Stuart get lost in science! Thanks for listening to a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online.